Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our DLBCL journey, but this time pausing just a little bit in regards to treatment and management and talking all about the fundamentals of CAR-T therapy. Excited to get into this episode. I think for me, I didn't really understand what CAR-T was, what a bite was, until well into fellowship and we're really going to break these details down for our listeners before we get into the details of the trials and the management of relapse refractory large cell lymphoma. I think it's just so cool to see how this technology has matured. I remember some of those early days of CAR-T from residency, and it seemed like this wacky new thing. It was super dangerous, and it just seems like it's come a really long way. Absolutely. I'm excited to get into this and really laying the foundation for a great talk thereafter on treatment of lymphomas. All right, guys. So without further ado, let's get to that show. Vivek, so I I know that you're going on vacation again soon. Do you want to tell our listeners where you're headed? Oh, yeah. I'm super excited for this one. So we are going to Kenya this week, actually, and we're going to go on an eight-day safari, which is going to be pretty incredible. And it's very, very affordable. So we will um, put a link in our show notes to this Kenyan safari adventure so our listeners can take a look because I'm really excited about it. And I've actually never been on a safari before, so this is going to be a really fun thing to do. So I think what everyone wants to know is, uh, what's your choice of malaria prophylaxis? I'm doing a tofaquone for prophylaxis, and don't worry, I took the oral typhoid vaccination series as well. And I've got yellow fever vaccination, and they give you a yellow card for your yellow fever vaccination. So, you know, I've got my yellow card. This is a really good public service announcement to make sure you visit your travel medicine clinic before any exotic trip like this. But that sounds awesome, Vivek. We're looking forward to seeing your pictures. Obviously, I follow Christine on Instagram, your wife, and so hopefully she'll be posting from the safari. So, you know, I'll feel like I'm on that trip with you. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited as kind of one of the last things that you're going to be doing before your trip is talking a little bit about, you know, the fundamentals of of CAR-T today and also bite therapy. And, you know, this will lay a really nice foundation for us talking about that relapse refractory DLBCL management and discussion that we'll be having in the near future. So, you know, without further ado, do you want to kick us off with a case and then we'll get the ball rolling on this? Yeah, let's do it. So this is a patient of mine that I that I saw in clinic, actually. So we have a 43-year-old male with HIV-associated high-grade B-cell lymphoma who completed six cycles of dose-adjusted REPOC in addition to antiretroviral therapy. Remember, high-grade B-cell lymphoma is either double hit or triple hit. At initial diagnosis, he had a PET-CT with diffuse adenopathy above and below the diaphragm, intense bone marrow avidity with associated cytopenias, a 9-centimeter avid left hepatic lobe mass, splenomegaly measuring 20 centimeters with an avid spleen, and diffusely enlarged pancreatic infiltration extending into the mesentery and omentum. So this guy had pretty extensive disease. After three cycles of therapy, he had an interim PET-CT, which showed a score of four on a five-point scale, same thing as the Deauville score, on his pancreatic mass, and his other sites of disease had decreased in size with a score of two. 
He now presented to clinic six weeks after his last cycle of chemotherapy and had an end-of-treatment PET-CT, which showed a 1.5-centimeter subcarinal lymph node and a large peripancreatic nodal mass for both intensely avid with a score of 5, and he also had new foci of uptake in his distal left 6th and 7th ribs. So remember again, these scores of 5 on a 5-point scale is the same as the Deauville score. He underwent a biopsy which confirmed persistent high-grade B-cell lymphoma that was consistent with primary refractory disease. So overall, he felt well. He had an excellent performance status before this appointment. He had planned to go back to work full-time. And now we're here, and we're planning to discuss treatment options, including CAR-T and high-dose chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell rescue. So let's take this episode to give an introduction to CAR-T, bite therapy, and autotransplant and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. In the next episode, we'll go into the more comprehensive details on the data and the historical perspective for these therapies. Before we get into the basics of CAR-T, can we discuss the differences in primary refractory and relapse disease in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Sure. So primary refractory disease is defined by having an end-of-treatment PET with that five-point scale score registering a four or five. And this has a really poor prognosis overall. These patients should generally go to CAR-T as standard of care. If you have a patient with concern for refractory disease at the end of treatment, it's important to repeat the biopsy and confirm persistent disease. Clinical context is also super important, considering does this patient need urgent therapy to debulk their disease, etc. In these cases, an FNA of a palpable node can be sufficient to expedite that diagnosis if you're really pressed for time. And honestly, with most of these cases, the sooner we can get that information, the better, because the process for CAR-T approval and CAR-T generation does take some time. Relapse disease generally comes in two different varieties. You can have relapse within 12 months, and that generally has the same prognosis as primary refractory disease. They're they're equivalent, essentially. And patients should be referred to CAR-T as standard of care for, for that situation as well. For relapse after 12 months, that has a better prognosis. And currently, high-dose chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue would be a reasonable treatment option for that population. Bottom line, remember this. Primary refractory disease and relapse within 12 months are considered equivalent. They have the same poor prognosis and both need to proceed to CAR-T if feasible. For relapse after 12 months, we're looking at a better prognosis overall and high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell transplant is a reasonable option. If somebody relapses after 12 months and then is refractory to the next line of treatment, that also has a poor prognosis, as as you might imagine. And we generally prefer CAR-T over autologous transplant in that setting. And so that's called relapse refractory disease. That's where that kind of overlap category between the two comes in. Dan, I think that was a great review, and that makes a lot of sense. So based on what you just described, um, it sounds like our patient would be classified as primary refractory disease, given the fact that he still has persistent disease on that end-of-treatment PET scan. And you guys have been alluding to this now, and we've kind of been drumming this up, but I think it's time that we actually talk about what CAR-T really is. So, Viva, can you shed some light on on this, this new kind of emerging therapy that we hear about all the time in every, it seems like every article that comes out these days? Yeah, definitely. And for this episode, it was really hard for me to think about how to do this because normally I give a lecture to our fellowship and can have diagrams and can draw things out and it's a lot easier. 
But really what we need to understand is the basics of the normal immune system and fighting cancer. And I'm going to explain this in a very easy to understand way. So one type of immune cell we have is the B cell. These B cells will secrete antibodies that have high affinity to specific target antigens. I like to think about this as a little homing missile flag. And in order for your B cells to develop these antibodies, the tumor cells themselves have to present and have tumor-specific antigens, which we call neoantigens. So when you're thinking about a solid tumor, they might present some neoantigens because if you think about it, these tumor cells are derived from self, right? They came from our own cells. So in order for your immune system to recognize them, they have to express non-self antigens. For your T cells, you have your CD4 helper T cells, which essentially help coordinate the immune system. They're like the head coach of the immune system. And then you have your CD8 killer T-cells, and these have direct cytotoxic activity against cancer cells. But here's the problem. In order to function, this CD8-positive T-cell, this killer T-cells, needs to both recognize the cancer cell and receive a co-stimulation signal to work. And the key thing here is the T-cell receptor. So these T-cells have a receptor called the T-cell receptor, and these T-cell receptors can recognize foreign antigen, but they don't have the same sort of specificity as an antibody would coming from that B cell. And it requires binding to an MHC1 complex on the tumor cell or presentation from an antigen-presenting cell. And in addition to that, needs co-stimulation. So you can see there's multiple steps that need to happen for this T cell to operate. And that makes sense, right? Because these T cells are made in our thymus. And the whole goal of our body is to not attack self. Don't get an autoimmune condition. So these T cells need a lot of steps to actually function and kill the target cell. And that is the redundancy that's needed to prevent autoimmune attacks. So it makes a whole lot of sense. So you can see now this is going to be very difficult for your immune system to kill tumor cells, right? Because these tumor cells have self-antigens, and the T cells have trouble finding and binding to the tumor cells, and they need a co-stimulation. So that's the difficulty here. If the T cell is lucky enough to bind to a tumor antigen, they can then expand. And this idea of T cell expansion is really important because that's really how you get an effective immune response. And ultimately, that's probably a good thing, right? These T cells are incredibly effective at killing eukaryotic cells. So you don't want them to have an easy time finding host cells and killing them. But to summarize these basics, B cells make antibodies that are highly selective for a pre-specified antigen but this requires a tumor cell to express a non-self neoantigen. T cells have a T cell receptor that can recognize foreign antigens, but they're not really looking for just a pre-specified antigen like an antibody. In order for a T cell to kill a target tumor cell, it needs to also have co-stimulation from a different type of immune cell like a B cell or a dendritic cell. So it needs to work in concert with other components of the immune system. And that's exactly the foundation for understanding CAR-T, what Dan just laid out there. And what is CAR-T? It's defined as chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. You'll understand why it's called chimeric. It's actually not that hard. So this is a type of gene cell therapy where we take out patients' native lymphocytes and modify their T-cell receptor in the lab to directly target a specific antigen and elicit an immediate cytotoxic response when bound. So basically, really smart people thought, why not 
modify this T-cell receptor to have the targeting ability of an antibody and the effector function of a killer T-cell. It's chimeric, right? It has multiple functions here. It's a chimeric function. And let's bypass the normal activation and co-stimulation steps, right? That's challenging to do in this environment with a complex tumor microenvironment at play. So this really works if we have a specific universal target in mind, right? And we're lucky that B-cell malignancies have a universal target in CD19, and we can kill every CD19 cell in the body, the good and the bad, right, your native B-cells and your tumor B-cells, and still survive. You can see here how this would be difficult in a solid tumor, right? If you're targeting a lung tissue type of antigen or anything with cross-reactivity, you could run into major, major trouble with these hot T-cells just killing cross-reactive self-targets. So remember, it's called chimeric because it's a genetically modified receptor that combines multiple fusion proteins to allow for direct binding to a pre-specified antigen, like an antibody would, and kill the target with automatic self-stimulation instead of requiring co-stimulation. These modified CAR T-cells are able to expand on their own after infusion into the body to do maximal damage to the tumor. So essentially, you have a homing missile that will find the tumor cell, expand itself to create more homing missiles, and then explode shortly after impact. So this is how CAR T-cell therapy works. So then, Vivek, what will then happen as kind of a sequelae of that, though, is that the patient would, in theory, have like a B-cell aplasia right after after therapy? Yeah, that's exactly right. Got it. And, and I'm glad that you highlighted the fact that patients can live with a B-cell aplasia and be okay. And, you know, in these patients, we can do things like give them IVIG to help them prevent infections. And that would be a great way to get them out of trouble. But it's also great to know that this is such an effective target that we can use for the CAR-T to be able to target the cells that are the troublemakers in the situation. So this all sounds really, really promising, but also, as you alluded to, there is both a lab component and then also what happens once those cells are back in, and reinfused into the body. So can one of you guys kind of talk to us a little bit about how we actually make these CAR T cells? The manufacturing process for these is very complex, obviously involves a tremendous amount of advanced molecular biology and cell biology. But we're going to give you some of the highlights so we can understand the basics of this process. First, and this is the non-scientific component, you have to go through insurance approval. That's just a reality of our system. This process alone can take several weeks. But once approved, the patient gets a special port place and will undergo a leukophoresis process where we collect cells for manipulation in the lab. This bag of isolated cells then gets sent off to the company that manufactures the CAR-T cells. This process changes depending on the specific CAR-T product, but in general, we have to transduce the CAR-T construct with a retrovirus or lentivirus vector to modify the native T-cell receptor. These modified T-cells are then allowed to expand in vitro for a week or two, followed by a series of quality control tests. The product is then shipped back to the CAR-T center where the patient will receive their care. Patients are then given kind of conditioning chemotherapy, essentially a lymphodepleting chemotherapy for a few days in order to get rid of native lymphocytes to avoid disrupting interactions with the product that's about to be infused. After that, the CAR T cells are infused into the patient and a period of very close monitoring happens after that. So it's definitely a time and labor intensive process, but 
really is revolutionary in how we treat these B-cell lymphomas. I know that we have three different CAR-T products approved for DLBCL and that they all tend to have different side effect profiles. One thing I always hear is that the different co-stimulatory domains used between these products can influence that. Can we go through that a little bit more, what it means to have a different co-stimulatory domain and, and what the different products have? Yeah, so the three CAR-T products are Axicaptogene, Sillalusil, also known as Axicel or Yescarta. This will all be in our show notes, by the way. Tisagen Leclusil, which is known as Kimraya or Tisacel, and Lysocaptogene Marilusil, which is known as Lysacel or Brayanzi. Don't worry about it. It'll be in our show notes. But the bottom line is this. AxiCell has a CD28 co-simulatory domain, and the other two have a 4-1-BB co-simulatory domain. And now you're listening to this thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? But let's just keep this super simple. CD28 is a co-simulatory domain that ends up with more rapid expansion of T-cells and side effects, including cytokine release syndrome, which we'll talk about in a second, and neurotoxicity syndrome. So that's CD28. More rapid expansion more side effects we think may have better efficacy with better response rates. The details we'll discuss in the next episode. 41BB has less rapid CAR expansion, but likely more CAR-T persistence. We know that, that there's more persistence of these CARs. And there's a lower risk of those side effects. The other thing I want to point out is that if you look at a diagram of these CAR receptors, and we'll include one, you'll see that CD3 is an essential, important signaling marker for all of these constructs. And remember CD3. That's going to be very important as we talk about bite therapy. And so between those products, which uses CD28, which uses 41BB? So AxiCell uses CD28, and 41BB is used in Tisacel and Lysacel. Got it. So essentially what you guys are also alluding to here is that there are differences in the construct and also in the co-simulatory domain, which subsequently results in a different side effect profile for each of the different types of cars. And listeners, we will get into management details in, in a future episode, but I want to summarize some of the terms that Vivek just mentioned as potential side effects. So this includes cytokine release syndrome and another side effect. So the immune effector cell neurotoxicity syndrome or ICANS, that mechanism is a little less well understood, but we think it's also likely related to the cytokine storm as well. This tends to be a later side effect. We typically see this about two to three weeks after CAR-T infusion. And here, the presentation be can be quite variable, but essentially just remember these are all neurologic signs and symptoms that you're looking out for. So this can be something like an expressive aphasia. We can also see things like seizures happening in our patients, and this can even progress to things like coma. So it's really, really, really important that we have um, an index of suspicion and that we're screening our patients for these sort of symptoms once they are getting their CAR-T therapy. So both of these syndromes have very specific grading criteria that we will include in our show notes for your reference. But what you need to know is if you get a phone call about a patient that is on CAR-T therapy presenting with either CRS or ICANS, how you treat it, at least acutely. So for CRS, the treatment for this is an anti-IL-6 receptor antibody called tocilizumab, and we're going to give this in conjunction with steroids. And if a patient is presenting with ICANs, then you want to also treat them with steroids. 
So again, we'll go into this, all of this in more detail. Take a look at the show notes, but remember, CRS and ICANS, major side effects that we worry about in patients getting CAR-T therapy. Thank you for going over that. Super important to understand these potential effects and, and sort of the emergent treatment of them. And I think that's a really good overview of CAR-T. You modify the T-cell receptor to have the homing missile ability of an antibody and self-stimulation so that it can kill the target on impact, right? So it's more independent of those interactions between other parts of the immune system, and it can just do its thing. But let's move on to bite therapy. What exactly is that? It's kind of a weird name. Bite therapy stands for bispecific T-cell engager. And this is a similar concept to CAR-T in that you're using your T-cells to kill the target tumor cell. And it's essentially two antibodies fused together is the way I like to think about it. One side will target a T-cell, and the other side will target a specific antigen that you're expressed on the tumor cell. So basically, you're bringing together a T-cell and a tumor cell, and the T-cell will then automatically kill that tumor cell. So it's a really interesting mechanism. The products in large cell lymphoma will have CD3 on one end for the T-cell and CD20 on the other end for that lymphoma cell. Essentially, the antibody will cause killing of the B-cell without the need for co-stimulation. So it's very interesting. And this also bypasses the need for antigen presentation and co-stimulation by bringing together the T-cell and the B-cell. And the T-cell will say, okay, I'm going to kill my target when both are bound to this bispecific antibody, this double-sided antibody. This has similar side effects to CAR-T with the cytokine storm that can result, so you still worry about the cytokine release syndrome and the immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. And currently, these are really used after progression on CAR-T. But here's the interesting thing. These are off the shelf. You don't need to harvest somebody's own T-cells, manufacture them in the lab, let them expand, bring them back, and infuse them back in. You can just grab this and give it to the patient like you would rituximab, for example. A little more complicated than that, but at the bottom line is you can get this off the shelf is what we call it. It's not something that is requiring manufacturing from the patient's own cells. That's so cool. Another another bispecific antibody coming into play. Remember, we talked about these in our hemophilia episode, actually. They weren't T-cell engaging antibodies in that case, but another antibody with each arm having a different target. I think that's so cool. And, you know, we know this is a ton of information, and, and we just wanted to give you an overview of how these things work. So always remember, you can refer back to the show notes, get some details laid out for some of these complex processes. But the last thing we should talk about is good old-fashioned chemotherapy followed by autologous transplant. What does that process entail? So autologous stem cell transplant and large cell lymphoma is very similar to what we talked about with high-dose melphalan and myeloma. And the idea here is that you can crank up the dose intensity of your chemotherapy to kill every last lymphoma cell and not worry about the ablation of the bone marrow and that dose-limiting myelosuppression side effect. And the idea here is that you do a combination of four different chemotherapy medicines. So in myeloma, you just gave high-dose melphalan. Here, you're giving four medicines. It's called beam conditioning, B for BCNU, E for atopicide, A for ARAC or cytarabine, and M for melphalan. And this conditioning will essentially cause every last myeloma cell to die. It's like dropping an atomic bomb. 
The key thing with auto transplant in lymphoma is that it was the standard of care for about 30 years prior to the invention of CAR T cell therapy in this relapsed or refractory setting. And it requires the patient to have chemo-responsive or chemosensitive disease. And the way we know that is we give patients what we call salvage platinum-based chemotherapy. So it's chemotherapy regimen that has a platinum agent in it. Give it for a couple cycles. If they have a partial response or better, then we move forward with the auto-transplant because we say they have chemosensitive disease. And so you can imagine that not every patient is going to have a partial response or better, so not every patient is going to be even a candidate for this high-dose chemotherapy followed by auto-transplant, and that's why CAR-T really changed the game. The patient doesn't need chemotherapy prior to CAR-T. When you're giving them chemotherapy prior to auto-transplant, getting a response is critical, and that's why we use these platinum-based salvage options in order to get a response to say, hey, you're a candidate for this auto-therapy. And autologous stem cell transplant still requires harvesting of the stem cells, but the difference here is insurance approval is way faster, and you don't have to ship it out for product manufacturing. So you can get things done in a quicker timeline for these patients. It is intensive. We're talking that Patients have really close monitoring for the first 30 days and have to be close to a transplant center for at least 100 days. So big change on quality of life and much different than even CAR T-cell therapy. That's a great explanation, Vivek, and thanks for taking us back through that. And it is nice to kind of talk a little bit about autologous transplants again, having talked about that a few months back with our myeloma series, um, just to kind of highlight that just because this is an older therapy doesn't mean that we're not using this anymore. There is still certainly a role for the less flashy version of treatment, but different patients will have different requirements based on how their disease is responding. So thanks for taking us through that. And, you know, I I think the future here is really just going to be to better understand how we utilize all of these different types of therapies in the appropriate sequence. And I'm sure that'll come up at at subsequent meetings like ASH and ASCO and others in the near future. So definitely keep your eyes and ears open for that, listeners. Guys, I think that really does provide a good general overview of how we should be thinking about things like CAR-T, bispecifics, and even the fundamentals of auto for lymphoma treatments. And so I think that this does lend itself to a very nice discussion in our next episode about how we're employing this in the relapse refractory setting. So listeners, stay tuned for that episode. I'm sure it's going to be a great one. Guys, any final thoughts that you all have? No, I think you covered it. I mean, amazing stuff here. Science is is making big progress in this field, and we're starting to learn better ways to manipulate an incredibly powerful tool that we all have inside of us to help fight some of these tricky to treat tumors. I'm just excited to get this done so I can go to Africa. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of the fellow on call. We'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.